Brothers and sisters, would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Luke, the fifth chapter, to read in your hearing from Luke's gospel, chapter five, verse twenty seven to thirty two. Luke chapter five, beginning at verse twenty seven. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen. Let's pray again together. Our Father, we have learned that it is as we deepen our own understanding of your grace that we are more effective in ministering that grace to others. And when we are shriveled up in our own sense of your goodness, we shrivel up towards others. So we pray that you will moisten our souls again and grant us through the preaching and hearing of the word a encouragement and a summons both. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure that for those of you who have read the book by Rosaria Butterfield, about her conversion to Christianity from a life of lesbianism. This was, for you, as it was for me, one of the most arresting sentences in the whole book. She writes, That morning, February 14, 1999, I emerged from the bed of my lesbian lover, and an hour later was sitting in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Mrs. Butterfield, at the time of her conversion, as I've mentioned before, was a professor, a tenured professor at Syracuse University. And she had there received an appointment to lead the Center for Women's Studies. She specialized in something called queer theory. This lesbian lover that she mentions was someone that she lived with and owned two homes with. This woman was also a professor at a Nearby university, she was a zealous advocate for animal rights. Mrs. Butterfield was at the time a professing atheist, a member of the Unitarian Universalist Church, where she coordinated the gay and lesbian advocacy group. All that lies behind the subtitle of her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Now, I've commended the book to you, and I gather you've taken me up on it, because there's no more on the bookstand. We'll have to order more soon. 
there are many profitable things about reading Mrs. Butterfield's book. Here's the, in my judgment, chief prophet to the church. She helps us understand what is necessary to minister the gospel to those in the homosexual community. She also helps us understand how we're not doing a very good job at the church ministering the gospel to those in the homosexual community. Mrs. Butterfield is now married to a Reformed and Presbyterian pastor, but she's obviously not forgotten the perspective of a homosexual inquiring, investigating into the church and into Christianity. Indeed, after she speaks of leaving her lesbian lover that Sunday morning to go to church, she adds, I share this detail with you not to be lurid, but merely to make the point that you never know the terrain someone else has walked to come worship the Lord. At several points in her book, Mrs. Butterfield seems to be raising this question implicit where it's not explicit a question put to churches like ours. How would you have responded if I had walked into your church in all my homosexual sinfulness? Brothers and sisters, it's time, some would say, high time, in fact, to talk about the opportunities and responsibilities the church has for ministry in the wake of U.S. v. Windsor. By now, most of us know that's the Supreme Court decision rendered last year, which gave federal government recognition to same-sex marriage. We've counted that in this series, the turning point in a great cultural battle. Thus far, we've considered two of three questions. The first question was, what is wrong? The second question is, how did we get here? And today we're going to begin to consider the third question, or rather its answer. How then should we live? Now, in a sense, we've already been considering the answer to that question because there are several things that could be said in answer to that question. One thing that has been implicit in what we've said thus far in answer to that question is we should live as a church not confused. Much of the church today is confused on this subject. We should not be confused. The scripture is clear. We're to think clearly and biblically. We're also not as a church to be intimidated. And all the threats that seem to rise steadily higher against an uncompromising biblical position. We are to defend the truth bravely. That's been implicit in what we've said. We should not, furthermore, be unaware of what this seems to be bringing to us as a church. Another occasion, another opportunity to suffer. In various ways for the word of God. These are all things that all along have been, of course, answers in a sense to this third question. How then should we live? But here's my burden, in fact, for the third part of this series. It's to speak of one particular way in which the church must live in the wake of U.S. v. Wade. It's just as essential as everything else we've looked at and all that's been implicit about having a proper biblical understanding of homosexuality and related issues. It's just as important as standing for the truth. It is the need, the necessity for the church to pursue loving and compassionate ministry to those ensnared by this sin, 
Just as essential for a faithful church as confronting sin is being what I'm calling this morning a sinner-friendly church. A church that imitates her Lord in welcoming every kind of sinner into our lives, into our assemblies, in order that we can share the gospel that we have ourselves received. Folks, I observe to you that there are churches of two very broad kinds that you can see and that are not hard to find even to this day. There are churches that take a clear and forceful stand against homosexuality as a sin. And there are churches that are warm and welcoming to homosexuals themselves. It is not as common to find churches that are both. And it is utterly essential to biblical fidelity for this church and every true Christian church to be both. Getting this right is just as important as getting right everything else we've already been seeing. So let's carry on this morning in these three ways. Let's ask first, what is a sinner-friendly church? Then let's look secondly at reasons why it could be hard to be a sinner-friendly church. And third, let's talk about the, the root issue of being sinner-friendly. When I use this expression, a sinner-friendly church, I'm taking language actually out of the Bible uh, and applying it to the church. Language that was ascribed to our Lord. And so what I'm going to do under this first heading is first look at some things about our Lord that made it clear he was, in a certain sense, a sinner-friendly person. And then we're going to see what that sinner friendliness looks like in a church by going back to Rosaria Butterfield's experience to illustrate it. Luke chapter 5 is the passage that I read at the outset, and it's one of the several places that rather famously characterizes Jesus himself. It's the account of the calling of Matthew, or also the disciple known as Levi. And he's called to discipleship. While in the midst of a vile and reprehensible profession, he's seated at his tax collector booth and Jesus calls him from that profession of tax collecting to be a disciple of his. Now, you say, I'm not sure I get that. Well, in the day in which Matthew practiced his particular profession, though theoretically you could say that this was it was possible to actually work in that profession and to be upright. Most Jews, all Jews knew that most tax collectors were not so upright. The reason you entered into the profession to be on behalf of the empire, to be on behalf of the Roman Empire, a collector of taxes, is that Rome had an agreement with its tax collectors. This is how much we want for you to collect from each of the citizens. Whatever you collect beyond that, it's yours. That's a good incentive program, don't you think? Tax collectors were highly incentivized. To collect as much as they could and to line their own pockets. It was a kind of racket, a empire approved racket. And the Jews knew this. The Jews knew that even their own countrymen, even fellow Jews, had come to work for Rome in order that they might enrich themselves at the expense 
of their countrymen. It was a reprehensible trade the way most pursued it. Jesus calls Matthew from that profession. And then the account tells us that Matthew holds a great feast for Jesus. Verse 29. And of course, Matthew invites his friends who are, what do you know, a large company of tax collectors. It's like an assembly of the mob bosses in the area. And so the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the day, the Pharisees and their scribes, we see in verse 30, grumble at the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink? That's a way of expressing friendship and fellowship. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus steps in to answer the question. He says something here that's been deservedly famous among us. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to the, call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Lord Jesus defends his practice of befriending reprehensible sinners for the sake of his messianic mission, which is to bring salvation to the worst of sinners. In other words, those who know that they are sinful are the ones who will benefit from what I have. And you Pharisees, you're righteous. That is to say, you don't have a clue of your need for salvation. Now, this is not an isolated episode in Luke's gospel or the other gospels in general. This is actually a pattern. It becomes a theme in Jesus' ministry. Let me give you a few more examples from Luke's gospel itself. In chapter 7, Luke tells us of a time that a notorious prostitute enters into the room where Jesus is eating and she anoints his feet, an expression of love and honor, anoints his feet with precious ointment. Now, the Pharisees who were invited, verse 39 of chapter 7, saw this. And this host, Pharisee, said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. Now, a word sinner was not used in a theological term in that sense. It was used in a, as a term of derision. It was a, a, in this particular context, it was a polite term for a harlot. That's what he's saying. And, and you can uh, envision this picture, this woman who's been with who knows how many men in, in unappetizing settings is now putting her hands on the Savior's feet and expressing her love for him. The Pharisee is icked out by this. Chapter 15, the Pharisees fuss about Jesus eating with both tax collectors and sinners. And we read in verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And that expression of the Pharisees has been turned into him that we sing, which I'll be referring us to later on today. Chapter 19, Jesus meets a particular tax collector. His name is Zacchaeus, and he meets him and invites himself over for lunch. First encounter. And, of course, there are comments made about that. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. 
This is a pattern. It's a way of our Lord in his ministry. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself somewhat ruefully comments upon the the word on the street about him when he says in another place, John came neither eating or drinking. And they said he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was the word in the street about Jesus. He was a friend of sinners. That was meant to be a slur on his character. The church ever since has come to to treasure that expression originally used against him by his enemies. He's a friend of sinners. Brothers and sisters, when we speak that way of Jesus as the people of God who know him and love him, let's be clear about what we do not mean, that Jesus was sinner friendly. We do not mean, this should be clear from what's already been said in this series, that Jesus was laid back about sin Or that he accepted people's sinful lifestyles just as they were. Sometimes that's the way Jesus is portrayed in light of this pattern that we're seeing. And that's blasphemous in light of the very things that I have just been speaking of. Jesus was not in the practice of hanging out with professional thieves or practicing prostitutes. He didn't have his disciples sitting with him, uh, calling themselves disciples, receiving baptism, uh, joining themselves to him during the day and practicing harlotry at night. Or going back and and, and ringing the last farthing or denarius out of widows. These were people who were his disciples who had turned from their sins. But everybody knew they had a past. If someone cares to know this, it's very clear that Jesus, in his sinner friendliness, was not accepting of their sin. In each of the passages that I've just referred to, there's a reference to the repentance of those who had come from their sordid pasts. In Luke 5, regarding tax collectors, he says, I'm not come to call righteous, but sinners too. Repentance in Luke seven regarding the prostitute who's anointing his feet. He says he was forgiven. Little loves little. This woman's been forgiven a lot. That implies that she'd come to see her sins. She repented of her sins in Luke 15. He hears them talk about how he is a friend of sinners and that launches him into a series of stories to describe how God is like the one who who loses a coin and does everything to find the coin and and other stories like it. And he says, behold, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's a slander of the Savior to say that for him, sinner friendliness meant that he had. No real big deal with their sins. But here's what we do mean when we say that Jesus was friendly towards even notorious sinners. He graciously received them despite their sins for the sake of their souls, for the sake of gospel ministry. I want you to envision with me. That the process by which a prostitute became a disciple of Christ, the process between which a typical tax collector became a baptized and uh, discipled member of Christ's community 
was a process that involved some time. It didn't happen typically immediately. They were there for a time in Christ's presence, representing in themselves everything that he was opposed to in their sinfulness. Yet he welcomed them. He graciously ministered to them. He didn't hold them at arm's length. He was kind and compassionate. He desired to help them. He loved them. You have an example of that in that encounter that's famous, rightly so, between Jesus and the woman at the well in Samaria. Do you remember the way that he spoke with her? She arrives. He knows her. He knows about her life. First words out of his mouth are, you are a serial adulterer and you need to repent. Is that how the account goes? You know it. No, that's not how it goes. He, in that encounter, does come to the point of her sin. He doesn't start there. There's something she needed to hear even more basic. He starts talking to her about living water and how he can give it to her. That's where he starts. There are things more important to talk about with a homosexual, for example, than the evil of homosexuality, the goodness of Christ, and the offer of the gospel, for example. And so under this first point, I'm saying nothing less than we're to be like Christ. In this respect, as in every other, we are to be as welcoming and loving towards those guilty of the worst of sins with a view to sharing the gospel with them. We're to put... The necessary confrontation of sin in the context of loving ministry of the gospel, just as it was in our Savior's life. I'm calling that being sinner-friendly Christians, a sinner-friendly church. Now I want to illustrate this from Rosaria Butterfield's testimony of her exposure to the church. There in Syracuse, New York, as a liberal university professor, Rosaria Butterfield undertook a book project. It was going to be a book on the religious right. She, along the way, published an article that was critical of Promise Keepers. It appeared in a local newspaper. Promise Keepers is an evangelical Christian ministry for men, along with Many letters that Rosaria Butterfield received, she received a letter from a local Presbyterian minister. His letter didn't fit into the two broad categories of all the other letters. There was fan mail and there was hate mail, and she separated the two. But this one letter didn't fit into either category. Pastor Ken Smith had written a gracious and kind letter, but one that was probing and graciously challenging of her convictions. She was puzzled by it. And because the letter ended with an invitation to call him, if she wanted to speak more about it, she eventually picked up the phone and called him. That phone conversation led to a dinner invitation from Pastor Smith and his wife. That dinner that she accepted led to a a relationship over two years between this woman and this older couple. That eventually led to her visiting the church that he pastored. That led to her eventually 
repenting of the sin of homosexuality and all other sins and being converted to Christ. I just want to read to you a few things about Rosaria Butterfield's testimony of the sheer friendliness that she encountered by these Christians. Of that first dinner meeting with the Smiths, she writes, Ken and Floyd did something at the meal that has a long Christian history, but has been functionally lost in too many Christian homes. Ken and Joy invited the stranger in, not to scapegoat me, but to listen, to learn, and to dialogue. During our meal, they did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script, as I had come to know it, when the evening ended, Pastor Ken said that he wanted to stay in touch. I knew that it was truly safe to accept his open hand. She writes of their relationship over the next two years. I invited them into my home and into my world. They met my friends, came to my dinner parties, saw me function in real life. They made themselves safe enough to do this. I observed that they fed and housed and counseled countless people from all walks of life. I saw how wide the door to their homes and the door to their hearts opened. I remember feeling like I could talk to them about anything. She writes about what finally brought the truth of the gospel home to her. Before I ever set foot in a church, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd on and off, studying scriptures and my heart. Ken, of course, knows the power of the word preached. But it seemed to me that he also knew at that time I couldn't come to church. It would have been too threatening, too weird, too much. So Ken was willing to bring the church to me. She writes about the response of the church when she finally began to attend. Even though I felt like a freak in that church, I was drawn to keep going back. My journey out of lesbianism was messy and difficult. I spent a lot of time in prayer and still do. I leaned heavily in the counsel of the women of the Syracuse church. And she mentions eight of them by name. I asked them vulnerable and real questions. And they answered me and loved me anyway. She does add at one point, did I find the perfect church? No. I almost left when things got hard and they got hard fast. The time that I brought my drag queen friend to church pushed a lot of folks out of their comfort zone. There are many points in which Mrs. Butterfield provides some painful criticism of the church. But the primary effect, I think it will be true of you as it was for me, the primary effect of reading her book is to be inspired by the example of a minister and his wife and a whole congregation who reached out in friendship to a sinner resulting in her conversion to Christ. They were acting like Christ. As they did so. So a sinner-friendly Christian is someone who's ready and willing to befriend even scandalous sinners for the sake of the gospel. A sinner-friendly church is one who expects and hopes for and even prays for the presence of unbelievers in their midst, and in their field of ministry, 
even notorious sinners. So Matthew's OPC, here's my question for you. How would you respond to the gay couple taking their place among you one Sunday morning? Emerging, as Mrs. Butterfield puts it, from their bed of gay love to sit an hour later in your midst. How would you respond? There are challenges to a right response. There are impediments. There are reasons that it is hard. Let's look at those secondly now. Reasons it could be hard to be a sinner-friendly church. Everything I've just been saying, you could agree with in concept and theory that you could still find it very difficult to respond with Christ-like warmth and graciousness to those committed to a homosexual lifestyle because we might be tempted to say, this is a little different. Even if we don't say that, we can feel that way. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't take much of a sense of reluctance in the eye or in the handshake to convey a lack of friendliness to sinners. It doesn't take much. So even a little bit of an impediment goes a long way in keeping the church from being like Christ. I want to look at three factors that can and do make it hard The first is righteous anger. The second is wise caution. And the third is moral repugnance. I'm going to stare at these closely and we're going to deal with them. So that though they have their legitimacy in themselves, they are not barriers to ministry in this church. First, righteous anger. We felt that, haven't we, thus far in this series? That's a a, a right response To all that we've been considering about the evil of sin and of homosexuality in particular and the evil of those who call evil good and good evil. We felt that you might say, Pastor, you've been speaking about all the aggression of the so-called gay lobby in America of how our freedoms are being eroded as Christians and how the proponents of sexual liberation will indeed press their advantage to the expense of the church. And that all makes me angry. You have reason to be angry. But listen to me. The scripture says, be angry and do not sin. And any righteous anger, no matter how righteous it may be, If it consumes your soul so that you're not capable of love, that is sinful. Does your soul have room for both righteous anger and love towards the same people whose sins anger you? If it doesn't, then your soul is estranged from Christ's. You can look at our Savior for pristine examples of righteous anger and of a heart, the same heart, and sometimes in the same moment, going out in compassion and love. Peter Hubbard is a man I've recently been introduced to in the written page. He's apparently a pastor at North Hills Community Church in Taylor, South Carolina. He's written an excellent book called Love 
into the light. The subtitle is The Gospel, the Homosexual, and the Church. He's clear in his introduction. The great burden behind this book is the concern that our culture war has so torqued the church to respond with righteous indignation that the church will be unable to minister as it's called to by the Lord of the church. He writes, this is my longing for the church. Every day the media overflows with legal and political news regarding homosexuality. We are witnessing what New York Times writer Frank Bruni describes as a profound social and political revolution. As in any revolution, the temptation is to join the frenzy and begin shooting at whoever we're told is the enemy. Soon the church can be defined by what we are against, what we oppose. And the gospel is lost in the fray. For you who find righteous anger to be an impediment to sinner friendliness, I have a couple things to point out to you. First of all, it may be helpful to bear in mind that it is unfair to impute to every homosexual the hardened aggression of the prominent culture warriors of our day. It's unlikely that Barney Frank is going to come and sit with us in this congregation. It's unlikely that Ellen DeGeneres is going to be seeking friendship from you. It's much more likely that you will have a lesbian couple move into your neighborhood. It's much more likely that you'll sit down with a decent chap who's also gay at your workplace. These things are much more likely. And there is a context, there is a setting, especially the culture war setting where things are being publicly set against Christ to stand and, and speak with righteous anger. We should not think that every person who identifies himself with this particular sin is of the same sort as the ones we're exposed to in our newspapers. You know what? Some of them are like the rest of the sinners in the world. They're just sinning their way quietly to hell. That's what they're like. Sinning their way quietly to hell. It's helpful to remember this. But here's the ultimate issue. Even should you encounter those most aggressive, those most vehement as enemies of Christ and thus of you, you serve a Savior who said this. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Hubbard writes of his attending the South Carolina Gay Pride March in Greenville, South Carolina, some years ago. And he writes, I was not surprised by the revolting signs or shameless garb of the gay pride marchers. I was expecting that. I was stunned by the heartless and merciless posters of many Christian protesters. You know, you've heard our media will be sure that you are aware that there are those who call themselves Christians like the infamous Westboro Baptist Church, whose tactics include signs at such occasions. God hates fags. And equally reprehensible slogans. 
And I doubt anyone here would even be tempted, even tempted, even occur to them to be so hateful in supposedly testifying to Christ. But, but I will ask you this question. You tell gay jokes? Do you take opportunity to, to make light of this sin and, and to uphold certain stereotypes of, of those in the homosexual community? Do you, do you make fun? Do you mock? First of all, this is way too serious a matter for joking. And second of all, homosexuals should be the objects of our compassion. Not the butt of our jokes. Righteous indignation has its place. It should be no barrier to sinner friendliness. Second possible problem with being sinner friendly is wise caution. You're mindful, especially after what we've studied in this series, that homosexuality is a sexual perversion. And you're aware that sexual perversions don't typically stand still. It's by no means the only sexual perversion. And sexual perversions tend to lead from one to the other. It's a particularly degraded form of sin. The Bible even puts it in a list of sins right next to bestiality. You might say, Pastor, I've been hearing that. I understand that the homosexual lifestyle in many cases is a wild and woolly thing. I'm concerned about having such people close to me, especially close to my children. I'm concerned about my children. Well, you have reason to be cautious of the destructive tendencies of any sexual perversion. But fear Likewise, is never to be an impediment to the expression of love. Listen to how God speaks to Paul in Corinth, a wicked and debauched city. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Apostle didn't receive assurances at every city he went that he would not be attacked or armed. You know the story. He had great reason to be afraid, and that was not an obstacle insurmountable to his ministry. It's interesting that Rosaria Butterfield was particularly impressed with this feature of the ministry she received from the Smiths, Ken and Floyd Smith. She writes about that meal that she first had in their home. The most memorable part of this meal was Ken's prayer before the meal. I never heard anyone pray to God as if God cared, as if God listened and as if God answered. It was not a pretentious prayer uttered for the heathen at the table to overhear. I have heard a few of those at gay pride marches or in front of Planned Parenthood clinics. Ken made himself vulnerable to me in his prayer by humbling himself before God. And I took note of that. She goes on to say, Ken and Floyd have a vulnerable and transparent faith. In this context of grappling with our fears, our even wise cautions 
I think it's helpful for me to remind you of something I said a few weeks ago. When Paul singles out homosexuality in Romans 1 as a sign of moral degeneracy, he's not saying that homosexuality is necessarily the last link in the chain of moral decay, as if every person who's guilty of homosexuality has reached rock bottom of moral degeneracy. We know that because Paul has a whole list of other sins. He singles out homosexuality because it illustrates one particular point, the blindness that comes from rejecting God as he reveals himself in nature. So it is not fair. It's actually not wise to paint everyone with the same brush. The accounts that I've read recently of Christians saved from the homosexual lifestyle differ dramatically. Some are converted out of the Atlanta bathhouse scene. Awful, dreadful. And others converted out of cozy, little lesbian marriages in New England. Very dramatic differences. But that's not the main point. That's actually not the main point. This caution that we have, this concern for our children, I want to ask you parents, as legitimate as that is, as important as it is for you to be careful about your households, your children. My question is, how far will you press that? How far will caution and concern for the well-being of your family and for the families that are seated around you? How far will you press that? You can press it so far that neither you nor your children ever encounter anybody who is dangerous and all sinners are dangerous, especially in an unconverted state. Is that how far you want to go? You understand this, don't you, parents? All ministry involves risk. All ministry, not just to yourself, to your children. That's a fact. John Piper, pastor of church for many years in downtown Minneapolis. I understand that he and his fellow staff members lived in downtown Minneapolis, where the church was located. Not a very good part of town. At one point, he wrote in some frustration, we all live in the inner city, the staff. And one of the first questions potential staff members ask when they come to interview is this. Will my children be safe? Piper wrote, I wish this was the tenth question and not the first question. Yes, it's a legitimate question. Why is it the first question? He says, I'm just tired of hearing that. I'm tired of American priorities. Whoever said your children will be safe in the call of God. How safe do you think missionary kids are? They're not as safe as your kids. How safe are you when you reach out to those potentially dangerous? Not as safe as if you seal your life off in a little cocoon and never engage the same people Jesus engaged. Fear keeps you from reaching out to those with sins of a homosexual nature. That reveals a more deeply rooted issue than just your opinion about homosexuality. 
You don't understand the Christian life and the Christian ministry that every one of us is called to. Righteous anger, wise caution, moral repugnance can be a barrier to being sinner-friendly Christians or a sinner-friendly church. I'm speaking here of that revulsion that we rightly feel at the unnaturalness of the sin of Sodom. Pastor, you've been saying that homosexuality is something detestable in God's eyes. You've told us that we're to have a right recoil from it. That's what I feel. I feel repulsed by it. I couldn't bring myself to have a conversation, much less a friendship with somebody who I knew was engaged in that. It's just so disgusting. You have reason to be repulsed by the sin of homosexuality. God calls us to loathe it. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. God, have mercy on us if we cannot get past our moral repugnance to minister to people who need the gospel. God, have mercy on us if we can't do what God did in his coming to us. Do you think that you have any more moral repugnance towards the sin of homosexuality than God does in his pure and holy nature towards everything that is true of us by nature? And here's the gospel. The gospel is he finds it morally repugnant and he gets past that. He gets past it. He comes to us despite it. There's room in your heart, if it's a heart shaped after God's own heart, for both moral repugnance and genuine compassion and loving concern. This is not easy, but something very important is at stake. Moral repugnance is not the same as personal repugnance. You can be utterly unaccepting of the sin without rejecting the sinner who needs the gospel. That's our Savior's M.O. in all his earthly ministry. Next week, We'll take a closer look at the phenomenon of same-sex attraction. We want to understand as well as we can people who are struggling with this. You know what we're going to find? I'll, I'll nail it down. I'll sum it up this way. At root, the issue in same-sex attraction is something fundamentally identical to something every one of us experiences. Sinful desires. That's what it amounts to. Sinful Desires. Every one of us experience that. You may find the concept of same-sex attraction to be utterly unfathomable to us at the experiential level. But the struggle with sin that it involves is actually something we'll find very familiar. At the level of the heart, we're simply not that different. Sometimes... Sometimes all it takes for a sincere Christian struggling with this repugnance impediment to ministry is actually to meet and befriend a real, live, generally decent gay or lesbian person. Sometimes that's all it takes. Some of us are perhaps so cocooned that you don't know anybody at all who calls himself gay or lesbian. In such a vacuum, all the moral repugnance can add to the stereotypes that you carry around with you, and, and it's inconceivable. But 
Guess what, older folks? That will not be true of your children. You might be able to succeed in cocooning yourself from such people, but that will not be possible for your children. Sooner or later, they're going to meet someone who calls himself gay or lesbian, and they're going to be shocked if all they've heard is your stereotypes and all they've heard is your moral repugnance. They're going to be shocked. This was a decent chap. This person was kind and gracious and intelligent. Don't set your kids up for that confusion. My first exposure to homosexuality came many years ago. It took the form of a fellow that I'd come to be very close to as a friend. A Christian. A friend of the family. Someone I saw at church. Someone I had many spiritual conversations with. The day came that he revealed to me his homosexual past and his ongoing homosexual desires. I was shocked. Yes, I was repulsed. But in the very moment, I was also stricken with compassion for my friend. At his life, at his struggle. I loved this guy as a Christian brother. That didn't stop with the news that he brought to me of his sexual sins. In fact, it made me even more earnest in wanting to pray and minister to him. Moral repugnance is not the same as personal repugnance. You're at all like your Savior. You can be dismayed by the nature of a man's sin and yet drawn to him in love and compassion. It's not hard. Rather, it is hard. It's not too hard to have both the same soul. So that leads me, brothers and sisters, to speak about, lastly, the root issue. And sinner friendliness. The root issue in our hearts is simply this. It's a right understanding of the gospel. Specifically what it means for God and Christ to move towards us in grace. To befriend us despite our sin. When Christians put qualifiers on their readiness to befriend a sinner, including homosexual sinners, they can very easily deny the gospel they believe in. I'm willing to be friendly if his homosexuality is in the past. Really? That's the condition. I'm willing to be friendly if he wants to talk about repentance. I'll talk to him about that. Really? That's your condition? I'm willing to be friendly if I can discern that the Spirit is, is already doing a work in his heart. Really? That's your condition? Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand that God came to us when we were stone cold dead in sin? He came to us like that. That's how he found us. That's how he moved towards us. That's how he befriended us. When we were in that condition. Do you understand that? 
And he calls us to be imitators of him in this regard. I've said that post-U.S. v. Windsor culture brings a test to the church. It actually brings two tests, a double test. The first test we've seen, will you stand for what is right? Will you stand for the law of God? In other words, will you be unabashed? professing, proclaiming what God says about homosexuality. That's the first test. The second test is, do you really understand the gospel? Will you show mercy and grace to those who need God? Will you love those that God loves? Will you minister to those that God is ministering to? The second test is, will you be a sinner-friendly church? Sinner-friendly Christian. Peter Hubbard, in his book, Love into the Light, identifies his purpose for writing. The pastors and ministry leaders would talk about same-sex attraction with awareness of their own sin, with biblical clarity and deep compassion for people. Two, that lonely, silent, same-sex attraction strugglers within our churches would feel loved and move towards the light of community. And third, that the church, all believers, would shift from reacting to media and political stories to proactively engaging our homosexual neighbors with the same love and the same truth that Jesus has offered to us. He begins the book that way. He has, ends the book with a vivid illustration of sinner friendliness. Most of you will be familiar with the controversy that engulfed Chick fil A restaurant chain. In 2012, Chick-fil-A, founded by a Christian businessman named Truett Cathy, run by his sons, also professing Christians. And the Cathy family has been outspoken in favor of traditional values. In mid-2012, Dan Cathy made several comments in public in support of traditional marriage. He was quoted as saying, those who have the audacity to define what marriage is about were inviting God's judgment on our nation. Oh. You remember the sound and fury unleashed politicians to pundits, mayors of major cities in America threatening boycotts. It also brought a groundswell of support for Chick-fil-A. On the whole, it was probably a net gain in terms of publicity. You know that part. Perhaps you're like me. You didn't know a backstory. The rest of the story. Peter Hubbard tells us about at the end of his book. Dan Cathy never backed down from his statements. He did, however, reach out to the gay community. Shane Winmeyer is a leader of the LGBT movement, founder of Campus Pride, leading campus organization promoting gay rights. He was also intent on leading a national campaign against Chick-fil-A, but he got a phone call from Dan Cathy himself. That phone call led to multiple interactions between himself and the Cathy's. Eventually, it led to Shane Winmeyer's change of mind about his intentions to lead a campaign against Chick-fil-A. He wrote, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family. Even my husband, Tommy, 
In return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A. But he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. When Meyer speaks of this lesser known element of the story in his article, Dan and me, my coming out as a friend of Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A. Paradigm shift I propose for us at this point in our series. What if homosexuality is not just a threat to the church? And our nation, it surely is that. What if it is not just a threat to the church and our nation? What if it's also an opportunity? What if God uses this immensely controversial subject to awaken the church to the glory of the gospel? And to put her in gear in new ways, ministering to sinners of all kinds, including homosexuals. May it be so. God, help us. May we learn new things about the grace and power of the gospel in these difficult days. Amen. Let's pray together. This test as well, O Lord. We want to pass. We want to show the compassion of Christ, the friendliness of his way of confronting sinners, both with their sin and with the opportunity of the gospel. Teach us this, we pray. Grant us what we need, overcoming all barriers. And then, O oh Lord, even as we are learning these things, and growing in these ways. Give us opportunities. Give us Rosaria Butterfields. Give us many such trophies, not of our prowess, but of your grace. From all walks of sin, even as you've done with us, give us this, we pray, for the sake of our Savior. Amen.